This episode of Engineering Matters was made in partnership with Mott McDonald. As water filled this valley, severe flood warnings were issued, meaning there's a danger to life. There are currently 409 flood alerts across England, Scotland and Wales, with 339 flood warnings. Six severe flood warnings are still in place, meaning there's a danger to life. Four on the River Team and two in South Wales, including the River Taff at Pontypridd. Some of the larger rivers are still responding to the rain that we had over the weekend from Storm Dennis. And some rivers, notably the Trent, the Wye and the Severn, have seen record river levels just earlier on today. And there's still some severe flood warnings on the Severn and the Wye and the Lug as well. In Ironbridge, the flood defences have failed. Along the swelling banks of the River Severn, the barriers designed to temporarily protect homes and businesses have moved allowing flood water in. With swathes of the UK underwater, many communities are slowly being cut off. Welcome to Engineering Matters. I'm Bernadette Ballantyne. Over the past few weeks, the UK has been battered by storms. In early February, Storm Chiara moved in from the North Atlantic, bringing gale force winds of over 90 miles an hour and heavy rain, particularly for the northwest of England and North Wales. Over 177 millimetres of rain fell in Cumbria in a single day. That's a lot of water but it's only half as much as fell in December 2015, when Storm Desmond dropped 341 millimetres in Cumbria in 24 hours, and it's the UK record for the most rain in a single day. It flooded 7,465 properties and left almost 18,000 without power. Back to 2020, and Kiara was followed by Storm Dennis. The Environment Agency said double the usual February rainfall had caused river levels to rise quite literally off the charts in 100 separate locations. At one, the river was so high it overwhelmed the electrical systems in the monitoring gauge. This year, the agency managed to protect over 85,000 properties, but 4,000 still flooded. Ironbridge in Shropshire had to be evacuated as the River Severn overwhelmed river walls and temporary flood barriers. Incidents like this show us that the task of flood protection is now more difficult than ever before. We currently spend 800 million a year on flood defence. The Environment Agency says it has to increase to a billion a year to make communities more resilient. And climate change is making such extreme weather events more severe and more frequent. Environment Agency Chief Executive Sir James Bevan says that we're in uncharted territory. Rainfall is becoming so intense and storms so severe that they amount to weather bombs. Hello, I'm Robert Nichols. I'm the director of the Tyndall Centre for Climate Change Research. That's a consortium of four universities um, across 
the UK and I'm you know Manchester, Newcastle, Cardiff and the University of East Anglia and I'm based actually in the University of East Anglia. Robert says global warming is increasing the atmosphere's capacity to hold moisture which results in more intense rainfall. There's more water coming out of the sky, there's more water flowing down the uh, rivers and, and hence we have a greater propensity to, to flooding. That's not all the sea level is rising as well. So this only affects coastal areas, but that has a similar effect in that the we get storms, uh, they cause high sea levels. And if the sea has risen, um, you, you get you get higher water levels um, than you than you would have got in the past. So that can also increase the risk of, of, of flooding in coastal areas. Paradoxically, drought is also an increasingly common and severe problem. One of the um, predictions of global warming is an intensification of the hydrological cycle in that we'll have wetter winters in the UK and we'll have drier summers. So we can have an increase in flooding at the same time as we actually get an increased likelihood of drought because we're seeing more drying generally because the, the, the average temperature is warmer and we're seeing less rainfall in the summer. So, that, you know, it seems almost uh, counterintuitive. We can see both effects happening together um, by this sort of intensification due to climate change. And this means taking a new approach. I think what we're coming to realise is that we, as a flooding industry, have been looking at climate change being obviously increased rainfall, um, changing, particularly in the summer storms, being more intense and overwhelming systems and trying to manage that. And it's only when we're coming to look at solutions and the potential impact of those solutions have we started to realise that maybe what we're doing to try and solve the flood situation is actually exacerbating the drought situation that climate change is predicting uh, for water resources. Fiona Barber is the global practice leader for both water resources and flooding practice at consultant Mott MacDonald. With flooding and drought in mind, she thinks that we need to manage water more holistically across regional boundaries and recognise flood water as a resource. Perhaps we could think differently to try and capture the resource uh, during flood times um, and perhaps use it or use it to recharge the groundwater after the flood event. This could be possible, says Fiona's colleague Sally Watson, a former hydrogeologist, water resources manager and now Technical Excellence Lead for Water and Environment at Mott MacDonald. If you can enhance infiltration or hold water back long enough that you allow it to infiltrate, then once it gets into the groundwater system, then it will be a much more slow progression through the aquifers and then potentially you could abstract it. Either via boreholes or from the rivers downstream in the catchment receiving the water, but at a slower pace but you've delayed that initial intense runoff. Meaning that river levels rise more slowly. The other effect is to do with water quality, so it wouldn't be carrying such a heavy sediment load, and so you've got better quality water that you're then allowing into rivers, and you're also not then stripping off sediment and soils from from, uh, agricultural land and so on. The key to this is holding water back in upland catchments before it can hit rivers and the communities beside them. Attention is turning to techniques for achieving that, providing upland water storage and encouraging infiltration into the ground. The function of a peatland in catchment hydrology is to regulate the runoff that you have from the catchment, but not only runoff in terms of the quantities of water, but also in terms of the quality of water. 
Dr. Aidan Foley knows everything about peat and he's also a principal hydrogeologist at Mott MacDonald. If you take a profile through a healthy peat soil, there is what is called the catotelm, which is the lower portion. And then sitting above this is the acrotelm, which is essentially the living portion. And in a, let's say, a three or four metre profile of peat, of blanket bog, only the upper half a metre at most is going to consist of living vegetation. And the mass of the body of the peat is consist of, it consists of uh, undegraded but dead plant material. And the reason it has not degraded is because the permeability of the peat is so low that water is unable to flow through it. And because water is unable to flow through it, the, um, the oxygen that is in the water is consumed by the bacteria before all of the plant material is broken down. And there is not a sufficient influx of oxygen through flushing water because of the low permeability. For, uh, for the plant material to get broken down. And so it accumulates, gradually accumulates. Um, and you have the living peat, the, the living uh, vegetation, just in the, in the top 20 to 40 or 50 centimetres. The deeper layers of the peat are dense and compacted, but it's this living layer that's most useful for water storage. The vegetated layer at the surface of the peat is often unsaturated, and that is where the storage, the water storage capacity of the peat lies. Conversely, burning peat, which is used as a land use management strategy in some moorlands to encourage grouse breeding, increases the rate of water runoff and therefore flood risk. Blanket bog has a whole mosaic of habitats. It has tussocks, it has pools, it has different species which have different essentially roughness characteristics that they impart to the surface. So there's a real micro topography associated with uh, peatlands and it's that that provides both the storage and the roughness that slows down the runoff. When you burn the peat and you remove the or you overgraze it, you remove this surface roughness, you change the uh, permeability characteristics of the surface layer so that it becomes much smoother and harder and the velocity and um, rate of runoff is much greater. Sadly the UK has a long history of destroying its peatlands. Research from Natural England finds that only 1% of England's deep peat is not damaged. But studies in the Pennines show it can be restored and we're developing the knowledge of how. Of course, there's other natural methods for slowing the flow of water and improving resilience. But to find and develop them, we need to change the way we think. Instead of focusing on discrete projects, we need to take a holistic, systemic approach that looks at entire catchments. So it's really having the opportunity to bring together all of the different sort of planning authorities or uh, organisations that have the responsibility for what are currently quite separated out areas to come together and to look at the picture as a whole and to agree the best approach. Best in terms of both cost and long-term value, addressing not just flood risk but issues like environmental quality, public amenity, biodiversity and carbon sequestration. So it's, it's 
bringing bring all the elements of the catchment and its function together so that we recognise that they're not isolated and that you do need to look at it as a system as a whole and uh, plan and understand it on that basis. To date, this has not been the usual approach. The crux to all of these issues or challenges is that we have different organisations looking after things separately. Um, We have a, a flood authority in England, it's an environment agency. We have water companies and we have local authorities who, who manage the, the planning. And in the industry, we've come up time and time again with these different bodies having different drivers that are at odds with each other. But change is coming. DEFRA has been pushing for multi-sector water resource planning at a regional scale, and that's happening nationally. It's probably fair to say that Water Resources East and Water Resources Southeast are ahead of the game as, as the two organisations that are kind of spearheading things. These two regional water resource planning bodies involve numerous stakeholders. While we're growing day by day, we have 58 registered members already, ranging from public water supply companies to community groups, conservation NGOs, internal drainage boards, land agents, energy companies and farmers. This is Nancy Smith from Water Resources East, and she says that working on a catchment scale allows them to look at water management beyond the traditional regulatory, political and operational boundaries that Fiona pointed to earlier. It overcomes the barriers that we've had for so long in water resource management in England, which is water use sectors making decisions in their individual silos driven by their own prerogatives. And this has led to to unintended results and disjointed planning and trade-offs which are becoming more and more obvious as challenges to our water resources become more apparent. For example, in June last year, Lincolnshire was experiencing high levels of flooding when at the exact same time farmers in Norfolk were going through unforeseen droughts. And it's this disparity that is causing the trouble and you're having to make trade-offs between providing water for public water supply against water for for farming and for irrigation. Finding solutions to this is only possible by looking at the region as a whole. Water Resources East covers an area of 31,000 square kilometres, running from the Humber River in the north down to Basildon in Essex, and east to west it encompasses Northampton in the middle of the country across to the east coast. And it makes some really important contributions to the UK's economy. The region's home to Cambridge University and the UK's busiest container port at Felixstowe. And it produces 40% of England's vegetables. A third of the region's land is below sea level, making it vulnerable to flooding by both rivers and the sea. It's also water scarce, with a lower annual rainfall than the Sahara Desert. And outside of London, we've got these these fast-growing cities such as Peterborough and Milton Keynes. So consumer demand is going to go up in the future. Um, And if we do nothing and we keep business as usual, we've predicted that we would face a demand and supply deficit of 570 megalitres of water a day by 2050. I'll just let that thought sit there for a moment. If we don't change the way that we manage water resources, within 30 years the demand for water in the east of England alone will outstrip supply by 570 million litres every day. How much water is that? Well, 570 million litres is the same as 570,000 cubic metres. And we asked Twitter for some suggestions of equivalence and keep listening at the end to hear the best ones. 
but the most obvious analogy is that of a swimming pool. This summer, athletes will be competing in Tokyo's Olympic Games. The swimming pool, which is 50 metres long, 25 metres wide and 3 metres deep, holds 3,750 cubic metres of water. So, the shortage predicted in the east of England by 2050 is equivalent to 152 Olympic pools every single day. The Water Resources East plan advocates capturing surplus water, including flood water, and using the most sustainable and resilient solutions for the future, which, Nancy says, means working with nature. Sadly for the East of England, it doesn't have any of the blanket bogs that Aidan is so passionate about, but it has other natural systems to work with. One concept is, is a multi-sector reservoir and interconnected water transfer systems. Um, and this is based around the Fenland river systems that we have in this area. A new reservoir in South Lincolnshire would be supplied by flows from five different water catchments through open waterways, increasing drought and flood resilience. Connecting flood-prone rivers to the reservoir would provide the equivalent of a pressure release valve. To have new open water transfers they'll also act as flood relief channels to reduce the risk for the growing towns. In a neighbouring region, Water Resources Southeast is also facing major challenges around water resources and flooding. This organisation is an alliance of the six water companies covering the southeast of England and London, Regulator Ofwat, the Environment Agency, DEFRA, the Consumer Council for Water and Natural England. Its area includes 20 million people, 40% of the UK population. This is Director Professor Trevor Bishop, who we spoke to by phone. Some of the biggest risks that we face may not be the ones we anticipate. So we have always planned for drought. That's what you do in water resources. But actually, the biggest failure in water resources in the last 20 years has been floods, which have knocked out critical infrastructure. A systems approach would have understood that earlier and maybe have resolved some of the problems. What not many people realise is that we've been perilously close to running out of water in our capital city and this was a major catalyst for taking a new catchment-based approach. In 2012, we looked down the barrel of the gun. We were in a drought situation where London was barely six months away from running out of water with the Olympics taking place that year. would have been an absolute disaster for the UK, for society, for business and for the environment. And this changed things from taking a risk approach, looking at things in isolation, to an approach of resilience and, and, and adopting a systems thinking approach to the way that we plan for the future. For Trevor and Water Resources Southeast, this means planning for climate change too. With wetter winters and drier summers, the storage of water is more critical than ever before. And the utilisation of floods is part of that. It, it, it's very difficult in terms of the scale of floods uh, dwarf the need for water resources, but you can certainly capture some flood water under some of the schemes that we're looking at. And there are a lot. Water Resources Southeast is looking at 1,500 projects to balance supply and demand. These include new infrastructure to move water around the country, new storage reservoirs to capture excess river flows, and increased aquifer storage and recovery, which is already used by Thames Water and across the US and Australia. Another important strategy is looking at the way that land is managed. So the way, the way that water flows through the catchment is really important in terms of land use. 
different types of land use. Some retain the water, some hold the soil together, some reduce the leaching of pollution into the rivers, uh, causing problems downstream for the environment and people. So we're looking at options where you can hold reverse auctions and provide the financial incentives for farmers to manage their land differently. So, for example, maybe to grow cover crops in the winter that they might not have done otherwise, or maybe to change their application and use of the land in terms of fertilisers. There's some really important ideas here. Planting the right crops on arable farmland rather than leaving the soil bare in winter, what Trevor calls cover crops, can slow rainwater runoff and soak up floodwater better. Cover crops bind the soil together with their roots, preventing muddy runoff into watercourses. That's desirable because it reduces sedimentation and also keeps fertile soil where the farmers need it, in their fields. They reduce fertiliser runoff in the same way. Cover crops also help capture and sequester carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and they promote biodiversity. Some water companies see changing land use practices as a way to reduce the need for water treatment, helping them avoid the need for new nitrogen or phosphate removal processes and the cost, carbon and chemicals associated with that. And they're encouraging farmers to help by paying them. So there's a really good product down in the Wessex area where farmers bid for the money so that they will pay to put cover crops on their land, reducing erosion, reducing phosphates and reducing the need for the water company having to build big treatment plants at the bottom of the catchment by actually uh, managing the upstream end. What both Water Resources East and Water Resources South East are doing in their multi-sector, regional approaches is making catchments more resilient to the challenges of the future by looking at challenges and solutions holistically. We need to adopt resilience, and resilience is looking at a whole range of risks in combination and a whole range of solutions in combination. And to do that, you have to look at the catchment and the system as a whole in the way we've never done. This seems essential for managing the effects of the unfolding climate emergency. So climate change is our single biggest threat, not just because the scale of the impacts, but because of the uncertainty so we have access to some of the best science in the world, and that's tremendous. But actually, we'll be dealing with an incredibly unstable and dynamic system in terms of the climate and how weather is generated. And therefore, we have to plan for uncertainty. We think we're already starting to see the effects on climate change. The groundwater and rivers are responding differently in a way that we haven't seen before. Mott McDonald's Fiona Barber agrees with Trevor that planning for resilience is critical. Part of resilience involves keeping people and property out of harm's way, and she agrees with the Environment Agency that new housing shouldn't be built on greenfield floodplains. But she also thinks we need to change our approach to planning so that communities already in floodplains, some of them centuries old, can cope with river flows that once would have been considered freak but are now becoming the new normal. She says that a blanket ban on building in floodplains could prevent development that would make these communities safer. We have to accept we have this legacy problem of flood-prone areas that are already developed. Greenfield land, I completely agree, should not be developed on. That is um, how we're going to protect our floodplains and maintain the storage that they provide at the moment. However, if this, the floodplain has already been developed, I think that calls for different rules and regulations because some of these times, the best solution for that is a flood defence scheme to remove that flood risk. 
Fiona says that things get more problematic in locations where flood defence is impractical for technical or economic reasons. She says it leaves communities in a deteriorating situation. At present, those who can afford to move are starting to, but the less well-off are stuck. Stuck with increasingly frequent and severe flooding, diminishing property prices and a declining local economy. It's socially unfair, she says, and it doesn't have to be this way. Planning Policy Statement 25 is the current legislation covering development and flood risk. It sets out the types of development and the level of protection that developments must have, depending on the risk of flooding. And I think the best opportunity for these communities is to perhaps look at ways at which a lower uh, standard of protection is acceptable, where the impact is reduced through the redevelopment, where water can be controlled through the streets, away from people's properties, um, and to areas that perhaps are allowed to flood, or the construction, particularly of non-residential development, is in a resilient way that allows it to flood but then recover quickly uh, with minimal economic impact. To be clear, Fiona says that critical infrastructure should continue to be protected to the high standard of a 1 in 1,000 year return period, as is currently the case. But what does that really mean? The concept of return periods is so fundamental in the world of flood protection, we asked a maths expert to explain it. The return period is the average time between events like earthquakes or floods that might have an impact on some structure or building or whatever. It's actually the estimated average time because no one knows for sure what uh, the, the time is going to be before the next uh, event happens, but it's used as a method of planning for extreme events. This is Rob Easterway. I'm an author. I write books about maths, most recently a book called Maths on the Back of an Envelope, which was written very much with engineers in mind. Um, I'm also director of Maths Inspiration, which is a series of theatre-based lecture shows we do for 16, 17-year-olds around the country to show them how maths applies in the real world. And defending critical infrastructure is a good example of that. Uh, you might expect it to be a thousand years before an event like this particular flood would happen. Uh, another way of saying that is that there's, well, a 1 in 1,000 chance means there is a 0.1% chance of this event happening in any particular year. Now, I think one of the problems that arises when people are trying to understand return periods is a misunderstanding of what a 1 in 1,000 year chance means, because it doesn't mean that every 1,000 years there's going to be a flood like this, for example. And I quite like to use analogies for this with uh, probabilities and risks that we're more familiar with. So let's take something that's as unlikely as a lot of rare events, um, meeting someone that's got the same birthday as you. There is a chance of the next person you bump into, uh, there's 365 days in the year, so there's a 1 in 365 chance that the next person that you meet will have the same birthday as you. That's a, like a 0.3% chance. Um, it's not impossible, it might happen, but then if you, if you bump into 365 people, you've got a big crowd lined up, uh, you might think, oh, well, I'm, there's bound to be someone with my birthday in there. And it, it, it is very likely, but in fact, uh, there's a, a significant chance that nobody in that group of 365 would have your birthday. Uh, but equally, there's quite a high chance that there'll be two or three. So it's not that a particularly severe flood will happen only once a millennium, but that there's a small chance it could happen each and every year. 
and you could be unlucky enough to get a cluster close together. Another important caveat about return periods, which look very reassuring, is that they're based on history. But of course, the past is not a predictor of the future. It kind of depends on whether the circumstances are the same. And when it comes to floods, this is even more the case, because of course, we're all aware that climate change means that the whole condition for extreme weather seem to be changing. And therefore, what the probabilities were of something in the last 100 years, is very unlikely to be the chance of those same things happening in the next 200. So you have to be extremely careful taking these figures that have been set in stone and using them to plan forwards. So climate change means that what we considered to be a one in a thousand year event in the past might be a one in 200 year event in the future, five times more likely in any year. But as Trevor said, the impacts of climate change are hard to predict. Quantifying risk involves understanding a complex range of issues, our changing climate, the topography of catchments, which is the distribution and relationship between urban, agrarian, wild country and coast. And the behaviour of water as it passes through the catchment. Is it soaked up by upland peat bogs? Is it able to spill from rivers onto wooded floodplains? Does it wind through intensively farmed fields? Is it forced through sewers? Is it constricted by man-made walls? What interrelated effects are taking place? There are still huge gaps in knowledge about these things and that makes it difficult to say exactly where spending money will make the greatest impact on flooding. Let's not forget drought either. Scenario planning has been a major part of the Water Resources East and Water Resources Southeast programmes and countless what-if questions have been asked and possible solutions identified. The thinking is that we can watch and see what scenario develops for real and then put a ready thought through solution into effect. And Fiona calls it an adaptive approach. Because of the the level of uncertainty, it is quite a big ask to design for the worst case scenario, not knowing whether that will happen um, and whether that investment is actually required. So, and this is where it comes back to the adaptive approach. We're trying to look at ways at which we can make sure that If the worst that happens, we can protect against it in the future, but not necessarily putting that investment in the ground at the moment. On the Humber Estuary in Lincolnshire, an adaptive approach is already being applied on a coastal project to protect against a 1 in 200 year storm, but with the knowledge that the frequency and severity of storms will get worse. Where needed, the project is being built to provide full protection now, but elsewhere, defence works are sized just to meet today's need. It's a way of keeping capital costs down and maybe deferring next investment for quite some time to come. It all depends how this unpredictable future plays out. But built into that scheme is a legal commitment by the council to review and update the defence strategy before 2050 um, as part of the Humber Estuary strategy. And that will then look at whether that needs to be raised to the predicted levels at 21.19. And so that scheme has been designed to have foundations and sheet piles to allow that um, level of protection to be raised in the future. And so that's it's more of an adaptive approach um, that allows for a lesser standard of protection than providing all of the um, potential long-term climate change design in day one. And it's more adaptive. But at the end of the day, it's still completely protecting to a certain uh, standard of protection. Fiona believes that for adaptive approaches and resilient infrastructure to become commonplace, the planning system has to change. It needs to allow existing towns, cities and communities already at risk to build protection. 
without a change in the planning laws, I don't think we're going to see the development into um, the resilient approaches because it, it's still a sort of very black and white issue. The reality is that flooding and drought are far from black and white. Existing approaches to managing both risks are already failing to cope with the weather bombs that have begun to detonate. The impact of flooding and drought could get much worse. Holism is a powerful theme in the new work being done on water resources management and it's clearly playing on Fiona's mind in other ways too. She sees future approaches to flooding as intrinsic to economic and social development, inclusion and opportunity and physical and mental well-being. Facing a growing risk from weather bomb rainfall and long thirsty droughts, what do we wish for as a society? What we are guilty of is just looking at the, the past, and that is the basis of all of our statistical analysis, to try and understand what, what the likelihood of flooding is and how to provide standards of protection. There is so much evidence of how that has changed even in the last 10 years to show that um, even with any projection of, of future climate change, it's going to get so much worse. And I think compounded with that is the increased density of our cities and the increased population and the great housing need are all combining to actually make this problem worsen on three fronts. And I think if we don't do anything, then we'll end up with an increased frequency of flood events and an increased amount of population that not just economically loses out, but has a lot of stress and mental health issues related to do with the fear of flooding and, and the impact of that. And I think it will actually cause quite a, an impact on our society far beyond just having to repair and, and recover from housing being flooded. Engineering Matters is a production of Reby Media. Produced by Bernadette Ballantyne, sound engineering by Ross McPherson, editing by John Young and Andrew Melius. Our executive flood manager is Rory Harris. You can find us on all podcast apps or at engineeringmatters.reby.media. Thank you to everyone on Twitter who suggested alternative ways to describe 570 million litres of water, especially Alice Can, a senior engineering consultant at Can Do Ventures based in Macclesfield. She calculated that it was equivalent to... One million camels drinking water for an hour. Rob Easterway, our wonderful maths guru, suggested it's six times the volume of London's Royal Albert Hall. But we also had an answer that was out of this world. Remember Sophie Harker from our episode on becoming an astronaut? It's episode 23 if you want to go back and have a listen. She works on space planes and her suggestion... 570 million litres is 740 times the volume of fuel required to send Apollo 11 to the moon and back. Engineering Matters has partnered with Leeds University's Interdisciplinary Ethics Applied Centre and Mott MacDonald to bring you our first live podcast on empowering ethical engineering. If you want to get involved, then please head over to our website where you can find a link to the event in our show notes. It's held later this month on the 18th of March from 4pm. Attendance is free, but spaces are limited and you have to register to attend.